0: next week we're going to start um, working through some of the, the components of our Easter series. We're going to take a break in, our, in this 40 for 40 series. If you've been with us, here's the concept, other than blatantly ripping off an idea from uh, ESPN. What we're trying to do is look at the 40 most influential chapters in all of the scriptures, um, and we use the resource. A lot of our small groups are studying this resource. It's called The Good Book um, by Darren Spoo and Karen, uh, Kyle Eidelman. Uh, I had those books for you guys outside a few weeks ago. You bought all of them. Thank you all for walking through this period of Lent. Lent is 40 days, 40 chapters. It's not too late because we're going to pick this series up on the other side of Easter. If you don't have this book, you should get this book. This week, i I received messages from three different people about how good the book was. One person was on the train home from New York City and texted me and said, I've been sitting here reading this book, which has just been fantastic. And a young girl that's commuting sitting next to me said, oh, what's that book? She goes, we just had an hour of conversation about God based on this book. So if you're not involved in this book, get yourself the book. It's really, really good. It'll give you a perspective. Of, you know, you can read one chapter, or one one thing of this book a night you'll get a good overview of the scriptures. Okay, so here's what we've learned so far. We've learned that in the judeo creation the judeo-christian creation story, it was in the ancient world different than any other religious creation story. Because our story is this that God created man and women in the image of God. In the Latin it was the word amago day unlike any other religion or belief system, which essentially said there's many gods and the kings are made in their images. Our story is this. Everyone's made in his image. Everyone, black, white, free, slave, poor, rich, powerful, peasant. Everybody is made in the image of God and endowed from creation to death with just inherent worth and value. We also discovered this concept, Imago Dei, which is also in Hebrew the word salem. That was the same word for statues. And in the ancient world, rulers would go around all the areas where they ruled and they would build for themselves statues. Because in a world where there was no internet or newspaper or TV, how would the people know who was in charge? Well, you make a big old powerful ripped up statue of yourself. So everyone knows who's in charge. But God who actually is in charge, commands his people not to make idols and images of him because he doesn't need any. He's already given the world images of what their king looks like. That's the role we were to play. Everybody was supposed to know who God was and how he would rule based on how we lived and reflect his image to the earth. Now, we've been walking through some of these great stories, right? Many of you who are here, you know, we talked about the concept of the commandments and rules. What do rules have to do with religion? And we looked at that after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God leads this community that was supposed to be a reflection of what it looks like when God rules. He leads them out of captivity and he gives them what we've turned into commandments that were never meant to be commandments, He starts to say to him, you are going to be my people. Look what I've done for you now. I'm going to show you and tell you who you are. In Judaism, they actually don't call them commandments. They call them utterances because they weren't designed to be a set-alone list of rules. They had this relational context. They described what living up to a certain value and identity and destiny would look like. They were rooted in who God's people were meant to be, flowing out of what it would be to be made in the image of God. So, utterance one was, you shouldn't have any other gods but me. And that's what made Israel so unique. Because God was trying to create for himself a people that would be unlike every other people group, right? And said that all these laws were given so they would be so unusual so that when Israel prospered, all of the world would look and say, wow, I wonder who their God is. In fact, God didn't want Israel to have a king because he knew that if Israel had a king, people would get confused and think it was the king that was doing all of this. And so Israel, just one more way, it was supposed to be unusual. They weren't to have a king. They didn't need a king because they had God. But what we looked at last week is Israel, God wasn't good enough for Israel. And they they started to say, we want a king just like everybody else has. And so God gave them one. Last week I described him to you. He, he, his name was Saul. And why was Saul picked? Essentially because he was big. He was bigger than everybody else. And he could fight Israel's battles for them. So, so Israel picks tall Saul. And along comes, if you were here, David the shepherd boy who has to bail him out. Because tall Saul, it turns out, isn't all that brave. But David, just, and it has nothing to do with his size or his strength or his ability with a slingshot. David has faith, unlike Saul. Which, by the way, it turns out is what reconciles us to God and makes us right before God, not keeping these Ten Commandments. Those commandments were supposed to be reflections of what we were, not how we would get to God. We get to God by faith, the kind of faith that David had. Or did he? In this week's email, I I, I told you that the talk was called Train Wrecks and Truth Tellers. Webster just added another term uh, to their dictionary this year, you know how they put new cultural terms in the dictionary every year. This uh, new term is dumpster fire. Have you heard of a dumpster fire? It's the common term for how we tend to screw our lives up. Train wreck, dumpster fire, pick any synonym you want. When I was a kid, when I would mess up, I would do something stupid. My father's talk to me always began with, what do you have rocks in your head? And uh, it became so common, as a little kid, I actually started to wonder, do I actually have rocks in my head? I had a pretty big head, and I thought I could have rocks in there. There are so many sayings for this, because there, there is a limitless amount of ways that we make stupid decisions and mess up our lives. We are, as a people, just like David, who has the potential to have great victory in our lives, but somehow from the jaws of victory, we often can snatch defeat. And what's so frustrating for me, I mean, I'm like, a, I'm like a God guy, right? But I still, I still, even when I know what the right decision is, I still have a huge propensity for making the wrong one. Why? And so welcome to this next incredibly powerful chapter in all of the Bible. And here's why the, our, our faith is so real, okay? This is David we're going to be talking about. King David, Israel's great king this is like this is a bit if there's like four people in all of the scripture that are like the most famous this is one of them okay and I am going to share with you a story that some of you know that you if this wasn't true you would never put this in the story this would be expunged blotted out no one would ever know this is shameful it's embarrassing but it's here and it's here for a reason so let's take a look When last we saw David, he was full of faith. Oh, I just believe in my God so much. He's already helped me defeat lions and tigers. Why wouldn't he help me defeat Goliath? And the scriptures say that he he shows up and he runs to the front lines to fight for the Lord his God. But it's been some time. And David is now Israel's second great king. He's no longer a young shepherd boy. And in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war... Or at least they should. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. You see, David is now not 15, David is 47. He's been king for 17 years and he's settled in nicely to the role. Built himself a really sweet palace overlooking the city. Everything's pretty good, right? It's going along all right. At least it seems to be. Except for this one little detail about David. David who was once led by faith. David who once led his people into battle. Now David stays home and sends other people to battle. Do you remember last week, There's this prophet that I talked to you about named Samuel. And so Samuel was talking to the, to the Israelites and... Uh, th- He he was going to have his sons continue to lead Israel without a king. Well, Israel goes, no, no, we want a king. We want to be just like every other nation. We don't want to be unique and reflect God. We just want a king to fight our battles first. So Samuel gets very upset. He goes, you don't know what you're asking for. And he comes to them. He gives them all these warnings. He lists all the things. You don't understand if you get a king, here's what a king's going to do. Well, here's one of the things. If you were here, I shared it with you last week. He said, if you have a king, do you know what a king's going to do to your sons? He's going to send your sons into battle for him. Your kids will be in the front of his chariot and he'll be in the back. Well, that used to not be true of David. But something changed. And so one evening, David got up from his bed. That's <laughs> kind of interesting, right? Nice of David to get off of the couch. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Beautiful. Can I just, I, share, I found this this week, I was doing my study on this. This very beautiful term is the word tobe, it's a Hebrew word tobe. Interesting side note, the word tobe, which means literally good and pleasing to our nature, is the same word used to describe how Eve felt about the tree from the, of the knowledge of good and evil. Because that fruit of that tree from which he was forbidden to eat, just, oh. So good-looking. It, it was, I mean, tobey. And so David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Interesting that the author points out that she's not the hot girl. Interesting that he doesn't come back and say, let me tell you about You know, how she looks in a bathing suit. Let me tell you what her measurements are. This is really interesting. Think about why he would record this. He comes back and goes, she's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. But if you remember, when Samuel warned Israel about what kings do... First, he said, you don't want a king because if you have a king, we're not all going to be in this together. The kings are going to send your sons out to die. And then he said, you don't want a king because when you have kings, do you know what kings do to your daughters? They take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And there's so much to dwell on in this story, not the least of which is how sexual sin, which is what David is about to get himself caught up in here, is rooted in the objectification of others. Because the David, she's not someone's daughter, or wife, or sister, or future wife, or troubled young girl. She's perfume. She's tobey. She's hot. She's an image on a screen. She's a dancer on a stage. She's the cute guy in the corner office. Right now, all that matters to David is, she's hot. The worst kind of sin and atrocities become possible. You can think about this through all of history, especially I heard two commentators this week talking about relating this to Nazi Germany. How in the world could this great European nation get itself to the position that just 60 or 70 years ago it was doing mass exterminations of human beings, it's because you start to objectify them and believe that they're not human beings. You start to forget the Bathshebas of our world are are not just someone's daughters or sons. They're God's daughters and sons and they're made in the image of God. They're not just hot. But David forgot. And so David sent messengers to get her, like the object he thought she was. And she came to him and he slept with her. And then she went back home and the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. And now David is no longer the leader of a unique nation, he is a king like every other king. And he begins to act just like any other king. And as we know from living long enough, the cover-up winds up being just as bad or worse than the crime. And so David sends Joab, his army commander, to Uriah, and David cooks up this scheme to cover up his sin... And he tells him, "Uh, Joab, go see Uriah and send him back here under the guise of, I want him to tell me how things are going on the front lines, how the battle is going. So Uriah comes home. And this is actually, honestly, I mean, laugh out loud funny if you go to 2 Samuel and read this. Because David tries to pretend like he gives a rip how the battle's going. Remember, he was on his couch just a short time before. And he starts asking Uriah questions that he doesn't care about the answers to. Oh, tell me about how Joab is doing. How do you think things are going? Okay, great. Now, I notice that you're home. And listen, I have a great idea. I mean, you've been working hard and fighting the good fight. Why don't you just go home and have an evening with your wife? You know, I've seen your wife. She's quite a looker. And all work and no play makes Uriah a cranky boy. In fact, Uriah, here, here's some wine. I had some oysters shucked for you. Head on back! Why? Because everybody will just assume that you know Uriah, Uriah went home and Bathsheba got pregnant and the baby's his. But see, Uriah, it's, it's really interesting. You're going to see this at the end of the story. Uriah is not like David anymore. Because David's a king just like every other king. And so David sends him home to be with his wife, but Uriah doesn't go. Uriah sleeps out in the fields. And so word gets back to David that Uriah didn't go home, so his plan is getting messed up, and David's upset about this. So he sends for Uriah again. And he says, I sent you home. Remember the wine and the song and all the rest? What happened? Why didn't you go home to your wife? Uriah said to David, look, the ark in Israel and Judah, they're staying in tents. My commander Joab is, and, and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go home to my wife and eat and drink and make love to her? As surely as you live, I wouldn't do such a thing. You have to imagine, number one, how infuriating this had to be for David because he thought he had a pretty good plan. And number two, that had to be a little convicting, don't you think? But David, man, he's got to cover this up. So this time he has, comes up with plan B. This is what I'm going to do. I don't, I'm not going to let you take the wine into your own hands. We're going to drink it together. And together they throw themselves a big old parte. And David gets Uriah all liquored up, thinking that, you know, what tends to happen is people talk a good game and they have real high morals, but we'll put some wine in them and see how things play out. And then he'll bag this whole thing and go home to his wife. Uriah heads out all boozed up, falls asleep in a field. Some of you have been there and done that. (laughs) And so, everybody sees him passed out in the field. Plan B has been ruined again. So now David, fearing that there is a baby bump quickly on its way, that his shame is going to be revealed, sinks to a new level. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. And then when you get him there, withdraw from him so that he'll be struck down and die. The nerve of this is what's so spooky. I mean, he actually gives Uriah the letter to carry to Job. Uriah carries with him his own death warrant back to Joab. And as a result, not only if you read this, not only is Uriah killed, but everybody on the front with him is killed. David's not responsible for just Uriah's death. David's responsible for a whole slew of men's deaths. Do you know who Uriah the Hittite was? I didn't until this week. When David was a fugitive, when he was running from tall Saul because tall Saul didn't want him to be king, David was surrounded by a group of friends that came to his rescue. A group that was referred to as his mighty men who risked their lives to save David from Saul. And guess who one of David's mighty men was? Uriah the Hittite. Because this is not just some guy that David had killed. This is somebody that David actually owed his life to. And this is David. Who has become a king. Just like every other king. In fact... You remember those ten utterances that God gave to his people? This is what will make you unique. This is how you will stand apart. Live this way. Just in this story, David covets and commits adultery and murder and he lies. He breaks half the Ten Commandments in like one sweeping thing. Because now David is a king just like every other king. David. Do you know who David is? David wrote the psalm that you read to your kids before they go to bed at night. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Really, David? David, who wrote Psalm 40, I desire to do your will. My God, your law is written within my heart. That man who had so much faith that ran past Saul to the front lines to take on Goliath. That man who wrote half of the songs that you've ever sang in a church. That man, David, did this. How does that happen? How is it that good people... The best people could be capable of doing such things. How is it that people who love God and serve God, people that who are baptized and teach Sunday school and become elders in churches and pastors uh, that are saved, that, 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 that speak about God all the time, how is it possible that this is where they could wind up? And here's the question for you this morning. Could it happen to you? Could it happen to me? Because the story is this. It's really more of a warning lesson than anything else. If it could happen to David, somebody that Paul described as a man after God's own heart, nobody has described me that way. Somebody that the scriptures say was a man after God's own heart. If it could happen to David, can I just be honest with you? I love you. It could happen to you. And it could happen to your beloved pastor too. And it wouldn't be that hard. Now, I know there's this popular kind of Western culture thing where we tend to believe or hope that at our core, everybody's just good. I mean, we're just, we're all good people. Uh, but what this story and, and all of the scriptures teaches that in our inner core, all of us have within us these seeds of sin, which have the potential to grow into these massive trees of evil and unrighteousness. Given the right set of circumstances, all of us are capable of the worst kind of sin you could imagine, You and I, even as much as we would like to think this could never happen to, you and, please, this is, David did this. You could do this. And so the scriptures have this clear warning. You see it, Abraham, everywhere. Abraham, he goes into a town and he, he gives his wife Sarah away to save his own skin. Jacob schemes and lies and steals. Moses is so disobedient to God he can't even get into the promised land. Peter denies Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus. And here is David. Do you think you're better than David? Written any Psalms lately? Because the minute we think we're better or I could never do that, you put yourself on a dangerous path because you let your guards down, you begin to water the seeds. You know those seeds are there? When when the guy in the cube next to you gets the promotion, do you feel the seed of envy? When you're at the gym and the girl's in the yoga pants in front on the stepping machine, do you feel the seed of lust, right? They're all there. It's just a matter of what happens to them. This example was given to me a long time ago when I was a young married man, and the speaker convinced me that despite the fact that I think I'm a pretty good person, I'm actually capable of doing maybe the worst. I mean, if David could do it, then I could do it. And he related it to marriage. He said, if you think that you are not going to cheat on your wife, that you would never cheat on your wife, you are already taking a step towards cheating on your wife. So now, I was young and ignorant, and so I thought it would be a good idea to go home and share this idea with Joan. And so... <laughs> I said to her, I want you to know it's quite possible that I could cheat on you. That didn't go well. But what I learned was, right, what I learned was, if I'm aware that it's possible that I could do this, I begin to live in a certain different kind of way, so I don't do this. See, the scriptures are just so full of warnings about this. And can I just, just quickly, this is not about sex today, but I just want to give you this concept. There is a particular seed of sin that is in all of us, and it has so much power to train wreck and dumpster fire lives. It's this seed of sexual sin. As a pastor, I've been meeting with people and helping people. People, you know, we like sheep have all gone astray, and we as sheep, sheep aren't that bright an animal. That's why the scripture chose it, and we get ourselves caught up in thickets all the time. And can I tell you, I've been counseling people for 20 years. Do you know what the biggest thicket that gets more people's lives caught on fire is? Sexual sin. Because it happens so much. If I was going to ask all of you this morning, if I gave you all a card and said, I want you to write your biggest regret down, your biggest regret, no one will ever see it, we're going to walk over and toss in the fire. Here's what I know based on my 20 years of counseling people. Most of you would write something that has to do with sexual sin, one you committed or one that was committed upon you. It's a seed like no other. It has so much power to ruin your lives. And this morning, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're playing with it. In fact, over and over, the Scripture warns of its power. The Apostle Paul, he wrote most of what we know as the New Testament. Most of what he was writing was letters to churches he had started. Here's what Paul says to do against sin. You need to be tough on sin. Here's what Paul says. He goes, finally, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Be strong. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Yes, stand. And then he goes on. He goes, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you might be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, stand. So what do we do against sin? Stand. Until he wrote the Corinthians this. Flee from sexual immorality. Run, sprint, you're going to lose. You can't stand there. This is a big problem. All other sins people commit are outside of their body. When you sin sexually, you're sinning against your own body. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit that you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Honor God with your bodies. David, you should have stayed on the couch. Don't go up on the roof. Jim, turn off the computer. I mean, this is so hard for us. Jill, stop flirting at work. There's so much to unpack on this. I'll li- just leave it here. But man, this one seed, squash the seed. And maybe, maybe the spirit is talking you this morning. Squash the seed because it will wreck your life. But what happened to David? How do you go from fighting Goliath to killing Uriah? And is there a lesson because there was a time in David's life when Saul was chasing him, when he'd be looking, he'd be hiding in caves, but he was so filled with faith and he found solace in God. There was this time when he would fight lions and bears. And now he stays home from the battle. 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 To which Moses might say, I told you about this. Because when Israel was getting led out of Egypt to be this people of gods that was going to look so much different than all these other other people that wasn't going to need a king. Moses said to the people, the Lord your God is going to bring you into a land he swore to give you when you when he made a vow to Abraham. It's a land that is large with prosperous cities that you didn't build. The houses will be stocked with goods that you didn't produce. You'll draw draw water from cisterns you didn't dig. You'll eat from vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant. And when you have eaten, you're full in this land. Morris County, New Jersey, Mendham, New Jersey. Be really careful not to forget the Lord who rescued from slavery in Egypt. It's a huge part of David's problem is that he has forgotten the Lord, his God. David is now about 47 years old. He's been king for 17 years. The war, the civil war that Israel fought is 10 years in the past. Most of his enemies are dead or defeated. He's enlarged Israel's territory. He's made a huge palace for himself to settle in. For into. Israel's more prosperous than at any time in its history. When you have eaten your fill of this land, be careful not to forget the Lord your God. You know, David was this amazing musician. He wrote half of the psalms that you know of. He wrote psalms that related to all of the great events in his life. But leading up to this episode with Bathsheba, David has not written a psalm in at least five years. And his love for God and his reliance on God and his need for God have waned. He has all but forgotten the Lord is God. He stopped prioritizing his relationship with God. There is just something so dangerous church about being comfortable. It's such a dangerous place to be comfortable. In fact, Jesus warned, we don't like to hear it because of where we live and who we are. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because God doesn't like rich people? No, because rich people's hearts grow really cold and they forget the Lord their God. Now, now, some of you know how the story plays itself out. Nathan enters the story. Nathan is a truth teller. you got a dumpster fire going on over here, and here comes the truth teller. I once preached a sermon called Everybody Needs a Nathan. Everybody needs somebody that can trust, that can, that can be in close enough proximity and relationship to tell you the truth about yourself. And so Nathan comes to David, and he says, "Nathan, uh, David, I need to tell you a story of something that's happening. And so David says, tell me. And he goes, well, David, there were these two men. One was rich and the other was poor. And the rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man, he had nothing except this one little ewe lamb. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food. It drank from his cup. It slept in his arms at night. It was like a daughter to him. And then a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep to prepare a meal for the traveler who came. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. And then in one of the great provocative statements in all of Scripture... Then Nathan said to David, that's you. You did that. You were capable of it, and you did it. And You could just sense this moment of self-realization, because I'm guessing David's a lot like you and I. Well, it wasn't really that bad. I only did it once. Maybe no one will ever find out. I just love the words of what God says, because you hear the heart of God who loves him so much. The Lord God of Israel says, David, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives in your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you even more. And then David said to Nathan, as the seriousness of this begins to weigh on him, I've sinned against the Lord. He acknowledged his sin. But he didn't do anything else. And here comes this interesting quote from Nathan. Nathan replied, the Lord's taken away your sin. You have faith. You screwed up. God chose you a long time ago. You're saved by your faith, not by your works. And you see once again the radical, controversial, overflowing, mind-bending, Frankly, upsetting grace of God. Because let me ask you a question. How does this story read if you're Uriah's mother? And so then God pronounces upon David what would be the coming consequences of sin because sin can be forgiven. But please understand, I'm, I, I have friends that, I, that live under this. Sin has consequences. David's child dies. His family is permanently broken and scarred. You can be forgiven, but you cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube. Sin has consequences. I had a friend recently that was on the brink of adultery. and He said to me, I think I'm just going to do this because I know God will forgive me. And I looked at him and I said, God will forgive you. But the consequences that you are going to reap on yourself and your family are going to be devastating. Don't do that. David is made completely right with God. He doesn't need to carry around the guilt and the shame. He repents and he finds forgiveness. And he begins writing psalms again. This is the psalm he writes based on this experience. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin's always before me. And it's against you only that I've sinned and done what's evil in your sight... Then he starts to understand the level of his brokenness and the seeds that are in all of us. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I need to be changed. I need a transformation. Create in me a pure heart, God. Renew a steadfast spirit with me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then he goes, I understand something now. You don't care. You don't judge me based on my behavior. It's not about doing things for God. You don't delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And so David repents and is forgiven and is changed and is transformed, but you cannot unsin. And David's life. And in our life, sin has consequences. And finally, there's a lesson I think you can learn. I can learn before you toss a match in another dumpster. I think the lesson begins with understanding that what God was trying to teach us all along in Israel is that God has provided a king. You don't need one. I see I love Tim Tebow. I hate when Christians keep holding up Tim Tebow because he's a human being and he's going to screw up. You keep, we keep looking for another king. Right? We just keep trying to hold somebody else up, hold somebody else up, hold somebody else up, and, and, and you, it's not a firm foundation. But see, there's a king revealed in this story. The king is seen, it's previewed, and the king is not David. It's Uriah, who is innocent and selfless and heroic to the end. It's Uriah who when placed in, his life is placed in harm's way. When he's called to lay down his life, he does so and he lays his life down for David. He dies being faithful and obedient to his call. He dies not for his own sin, but because of the sin of David's. Like Jesus, loyal to you from the beginning, faithful to you to the end. He dies for your sins and not his own. It is Jesus that pays the price for David's sin and your sin and my sin. There's one crucial difference, though. I heard an author say it this week. Uriah had no idea of what David had done to him. Jesus knows every single thing that you've done. And he still decided to go to the cross and die on your behalf. You see, God has forgiven your sin. And maybe it's in just seeing and knowing that. Maybe it's being captivated again by Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Maybe, maybe when he's lifted up like that, you and I could start to find the love and affection for him that David in all of his comfort had let wane. Thomas Chalmers is this well-known Scottish preacher and he, he preached a famous, you can Google this, it's everywhere, a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He wrote, seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by the force of mental determination. Reason and willpower are not enough, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. Put another way, the problem is not that our desires are so strong, it's that our love for God is so weak. And if we could develop the passion If we would understand who he is and what he's done, when you begin to understand that Jesus was a king, unlike David, he didn't come to serve himself. He died for you. He didn't ask you to die for him. He died for you even when you didn't deserve it. He sacrificed for you. He did not use his power to bring, to get something out of you. He leveraged it on your behalf. You don't start with sacrifice. Oh, I've been so good. I kept those commandments. You see, God? God? You start with what God has already done for you. You know, there's one last story. I'll close with this. There's one last story about adultery in the scripture. Some of you know it. There was a woman caught in adultery and the men from the town dragged her before all of the the religious leaders and they tried to trick Jesus up. They all had their stones. They were ready to kill her, which is what what she deserved by law in that day. And Jesus looks and says those famous lines uh, where he says, those of you that are without sin, cast the first stone. And everybody walks away. Now, what's fascinating is Jesus is without sin. And Jesus casts no stone. And he looks at her and he says this, where are all of those who condemned you? And she said, they're gone. Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And so what's so, so hard for sometimes Christians, good meaning Christians to understand is the order of these words. Because so many times, this, you, The gospel has been explained to you. If you're good and you leave your life of sin, you'll be forgiven. That's not the story of the Bible. That is not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to forgive you your sins, to pay the price for your sins, so that being overwhelmed by the love he has for you, you might go and sin no more. God's love is what frees us from sin, not the law, not reward. That's why I know I probably upset some of you a few weeks ago when I shared with you how I talked to my kids about sex. When I said to my one daughter one time, I said, listen, God has a plan for sex, and it's to be contained within a marital relationship, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't have sex outside of that relationship. And I remember there was something in my soul that I just wanted to say, and if you do, God is going to send you to hell, because I knew it would keep her in line. <laughs> I was sure of it, and I wanted to. But I felt this thing inside where I just felt God was saying, do not tell her that. Do not tell her that. You will drive a wedge between my daughter and I. That is not who I am and that is not what I do. I came to die for her sin. And so I looked at her and I said, "And you need to understand something about God. If you screw this up and you have sex outside of marriage, do you know what God will think of you? The day after, he'll think of you the same way he thought of you the day before. Now go and sin no more. And so, as the band comes, my prayer for all of you this morning is that your eyes would be lifted up like David's once were, that you have a father that could forgive David and turn him into a leader from from which Jesus would come. He breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free. I heard a preacher end a talk this week. He said, he said, Jesus' last words on the cross were not, now go and fix yourself. They were, it's finished. Now go and sin no more.